for checking out the Hope Culture Church podcast. To learn more and to stay connected, visit www.hopeculturechurch.com or follow us on social media at Hope Culture Church. We hope you enjoy this week's message. All right, good morning. We are excited for this brand new series, new year, new pace. Um, Thinking about the new year, it's been a big one. You know, it's a new decade. I am very reflective in nature. I was thinking back about the last year, the last 10 years, and so much has happened in the last 10 years. Abigail and I got married. We've had three kids. We've um, moved to Elgin, got a home, all these different things. Those are some of the positive ones. There's been lots of lows, too. We've, we've lost family members. We've had miscarriages and all these things. And I've been thinking about the highs and the lows and all these things. And I've also been thinking about who I was 10 years ago. Um, I don't know if any of you did that, kind of scrolled through social media back 10 years, jumped back and saw I had a baby face 10 years ago. Um, and I was just thinking back, man, so much has changed. I've changed so much. Um, Some of that has been because of the things I've walked through, and some of that has been much more intentional. Um, And I would love to head into this new year and new decade with that same intentionality that Abigail was just talking about, about who do I want to become? Not just what what do I want to accomplish? You know, a lot of us set goals. Some of us are very anti-goal setting, and that's cool, cool too, wherever you fall in that spectrum. But are we actually becoming who we want to be? Are we actually becoming the person we want to become? Because sometimes we set these goals, I want to make this much, or I want to make this decision in my career, or we're going to make this change, or we're going to do this move, and you know, our family's going to do this, or we're going to go on this vacation. We have these goals, these benchmarks, these things for the year, um, but are those things helping us become who we want to be? Or have you even thought about who you want to be? Have you thought about who you're going to be at 70 or 80 have you thought about the person that you, you want your kids to talk about or, or your family or your neighbors to talk about in the future? That's something I, I like to ask myself occasionally, especially as we head into the new year. Who do I want to become? And really, you know, I want to become like Jesus. And I think a lot of us would want that. You know, we want to be more like him. Um, we don't necessarily know what that looks like or, or how that's going to flesh itself out. Uh, maybe you're new to, to church or new to spiritual things in general, and you're like, I'm not so sure even about that. But for many of us, we want to become more like him, but are we doing that? Is that actually happening? I remember in Bible school, one of my very first Bible college classes, so this is you know, 12 years ago or so, we were sitting there, and one of our professors had a graph on the screen. And he goes, this is the average Christian spiritual life. And it was like, it looked like a stock chart. It was like up, plateau, up, plateau, down, up, plateau. It was just like this jaggedy thing up and to the right. Generally in the right direction, some back pedaling along the way, lots of plateaus, things like that. And I don't know, that's just always stuck with me of like, why is that? Why are there so many plateaus? Especially, I I did my internship at a church, and I really respected the pastor there, Um, and this was 10 years ago, and I was asking him, why why do so many people at some point kind of just max out? You know, they're like super excited about following Jesus in the beginning, you know, and they grow, they stop, they grow, they grow, stop. And then eventually, though, it seems like they kind of stop for a long time. It kind of seems like they just, they've, They've arrived, but not arrived. They've just, they've stopped where, wherever they were. And I was just asking him, and he had some different ideas and different things. And um, it's a question I ask myself regularly. Why, what causes us to stop growing? What are some of the things that, that are keeping us from being more like Jesus? 
And if somebody asked me, what are, what are the biggest problems to faith nowadays? I, I would have a list of answers, you know? I would have all these different things that come to mind, and maybe you have some things that come to mind. Um, but as I've been studying, one of the biggest problems has actually been hurry, which I don't even think would have made my list originally. But I've actually been studying it slowly for the last few years and a lot more intentionally for the last month. But Dallas Willard, who's a theologian, he passed away a few years ago, author, speaker, professor, said this. He said, hurry is the great enemy of, our, of souls in our day. Being busy is mostly a condition of our outer world. It is having many things to do. But being hurried is a problem of the soul. It is being so preoccupied with myself and what myself has to do that I'm no longer fully able to be present with God and fully present with you. There is no way a soul can thrive when it is hurried. Do you guys see the difference, what he's saying between busy and hurry? Busy is outside, it's circumstances, it's the things going around us, it's our schedule. Hurried is inside. It's when you can't catch up with yourself. It's, it's the problem behind a lot of our other problems. Um, Corey Tinboom said this, if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy. A lot of people, this is the, the most normal response. You say, how are you doing? People are like, good, just busy. Like, think about it. Everybody says that. I'm busy. I'm, I'm good. It's a good busy, though. You know, how are things? You know, good. We're just busy. This. The kids are doing this, this. If you think about it this week when you ask somebody, think about how many of those people will, will give you busy as part of their response. And it's not that busy is bad. It's just that what is it unintentionally doing to our soul? We've made slow negative. Slow is a bad thing. We, we, you know, if our internet is slow, that's terrible. And I do hate that. That is a terrible thing. <laughs> but if somebody has a lower IQ, some people would call them slow. Or if a movie is slow, a lot of times we associate that with it kind of being boring. You know, it's slow. What if it's just like, what if it's artistic? What if it's just showing you something different? But, or my phone is slow. Abigail actually said this last night. She's like, my phone is so slow. I don't know if it was our internet or what, or she just has an old phone. But slow has become negative in our culture. And we've idolized busyness. You know, we don't want to go to the doctor that has no one waiting for them. Because we're like, what is wrong with this guy? What is wrong with this, this woman who has nobody waiting for her in the office? Like, we want it to be busy because that means they're important. That means they matter. And we've, we've put that into our own life. Like, you know, when people ask us about what's going on, we want to tell them how much we, we're doing because that makes us feel important. It makes us feel like we're accomplishing something. You know, like, look at my list. Like, this is how important I am. I have all of these things. And, you know, pastors are some of the worst at it, honestly. Um, all the pastors I talk to are telling me how busy they are. Studies show that they compare their work hours to um, doctors and lawyers. One study said that being a pastor is probably the top three, number three stressful job in America, which is crazy. Why, why is everybody so busy and stressed out? The, um, the average person works four weeks more now than they did in 1979. And it's the opposite of what many people were predicting. They're like, technology is just starting to take off. It's going to make our jobs so much easier. We're going to automate things and, and these things, and we're going to have so much time we won't know what to do. And that's the exact opposite of the problem many of us are facing. Actually, you know, we're not just busy, we're distracted. The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. All smartphone users. This is not just iPhone. This is everybody. 
is on their phone for two and a half hours or more a day, and millennials are double that. That's us. That's, that's us. That's true. None of us are even denying it. We're just like, yes, that is true. But they, it's become to the point where psychologists actually came up with a new term called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. And it's this, a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing or anxiousness. It's that feeling when you finally have a spare moment and you feel like you should be doing something, which is, for a lot of us, all the time we have a free moment. Or we just even avoid that feeling and pull out our phone instantly. We, we might have time, but we, we automatically fill it with some sort of noise. It's that feeling of flustered, of like, if anything interrupts our day, it's like, oh no, this is going to throw everything off. And then there was some symptoms or more of a test to evaluate, do I have hurry sickness? This is some of the things they said. When you are at a store and you're about to go to the checkout, do you look for which lane is going to be the fastest? Not just the shortest line, but which actual checkout person is fast and not just taking their time and you go to that lane. Or you're driving and you're headed towards a stoplight and everybody stopped and you literally count the cars to see which lane you should get in. Or you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks you're doing. These are signs that you might have hurry sickness. And I failed all three of those things. (laughs) Another person, John Mark Comer, gave a list of 10 things that he sees that people have when they have hurry sickness. Symptoms. He said the first one is irritability. Hypersensitivity. It takes a little thing to set you off. Restlessness. Workaholism. Emotional numbness. You know you should be feel something in this moment, but your, your soul is not able to catch up to your body where your emotions aren't even processing in real time. Out of order priorities, lack of care for your body, escapist behavior, you stop practicing spiritual disciplines, and the last one is isolation. 39% of Americans are more anxious this year, well, 2019, than they were the year before. Anxiety is not going down. It is continuing to go up. 77% of young adults answered yes. When nothing else is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is touch my phone. I was watching, maybe you remember this, on Shark Tank a few years ago. um, They had the guys who came on and pitched the no phone. It's literally just a block of plastic. And they're like, it does nothing. It never runs out of battery. It has no signal. It has no screen. It's just, it's literally plastic. But their, their joke and what people are actually buying as a gay gift is that we are so addicted to our phone that it's just comforting to hold something in the shape of our phone. <laughs> we, we are distracting ourselves to, to spiritual death. You know, we are, we are so preoccupied and scared of, of silence and, and slowing down that we don't have time for our souls to be in the presence of God. What, what he was saying, what Dallas Willard was saying is that it's not just the busyness of our schedules, but it's the hurry and the pace of life internally that we're unwilling to slow down and be with God. This is from Henry David Thoreau. Over 150 years ago, he wrote this. In proportion, as our inward life fails, we go more constantly and desperately to the post office, which we don't do that anymore. You may depend on it that the poor fellow who walks away with the greatest number of letters, proud of his extensive correspondence, has not heard from himself in a long while. 
It was already starting to become a problem where we so want validation, we so want communication that we'll go anywhere it is to avoid being alone or slowing down or being silent or things like that. You know, we've replaced the post office with social media or email or things like that. We have this assembly line mentality where everything has to be more efficient, faster, better, which I love, you know. I'm a a C in the disc profile. If you've gone to growth track, part two, step two, you know, we talk about disc. I'm, I'm task-oriented. I want to get things done. It's my natural bent. But what are the unintended consequences of that? You know, in 2007, it was the official kickoff of the digital age or the information age. You know, that's when Facebook became available to everyone, not just colleges and, and schools like that. That's when Twitter moved from a blog to being for everybody. That's when a lot of things changed, and really our world changed, and that's only 13 years ago. That's so short. That seems like forever ago, but that's a, that's a short amount of time, and I don't know if we've actually slowed down enough to say, what is this doing to us? And I'm not the person who's like, get rid of it all. That's not the end of this message. That's not where we're headed. Because I love it. I use it. I just want us to be aware and ask ourselves, what is this doing to my soul? And I think, I think it's doing a couple things. The first is that it's robbing us of love and joy and peace. Love and joy and peace are like the big three when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to the Holy Spirit in our life. Paul lists them all the time. You know, Galatians 5, he lists nine things, but the first three are love, joy, and peace. In Romans, he says, um, with the Holy Spirit comes love, joy, peace, and righteousness. You know, these things are supposed to be characters of our life. They're supposed to be things that we have. We're supposed to be full of love. We're supposed to be joyful, and we're supposed to be full of peace. But when we're hurried, they're the first things to go. Because honestly, the true form of these things are incompatible with hurry. If you read Paul's description of love, the first thing he says is love is patient. Patience is slow. If you are hurried, you cannot be fully loving. I know this is true in my life. Just think about when you're trying to get out the door and your roommate's slowing you down or your spouse is slowing you down or your kids are slowing you down and you're just like, that's like when you're at your worst, right? For me, that's like when I'm the most irritated. It's like, come on, guys, we gotta go. We've been putting on our shoes for 15 minutes, right? It's like, forget love, we just gotta get in the car. But when we're hurried, we lose sight of what really matters, we are unable to truly be loving in that moment. When we're constantly hurried, we can't be peaceful. Because you can't, you can fake it on the outside, but you don't have it on the inside when you're feeling that anxious rust, restlessness that comes with hurry. We, we can't be full of joy because we're constantly thinking about what we have to get done or what's next. We're at our worst when we're living a hurried life. The second part is we're not present. And that's what Dallas Willard said. He said, we're not able to be fully present with God, with ourselves, or with the person in front of us. And I know you know the difference when, when you're having a conversation with somebody and they're looking at their watch or they're looking over your shoulder or they're, you can just tell they're distracted or they're fully present, you know? We can feel that difference in love and it's, we've all done it. We all do it on accident, on occasion, but when that starts to become regular, we're missing out on the life God is calling us to live. And it's okay to be busy. 
Jesus was really busy, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But how do we actually live in a busy culture and world without having the unintended consequences of having a hurried soul? That's, that's really the whole premise of the next four weeks. How do we, you know, not just become some, like Luke Skywalker and move to an island and live by ourselves. That's not the solution. How do we actually live in the world that we're living in, but at a different pace? And so I think the solution, as every solution is, is Jesus. This is what Jesus says. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. You might not even realize how weary and burdened you are. Maybe you did. Maybe you, dro- you were dragging yourself to church today because you were weary and burdened. But maybe, maybe you're just like, I don't even know how tired I am because I haven't slowed enough, down enough to feel it. I don't know about you, but sometimes the busiest seasons of my life, I'm like, I should be tired. And I don't feel it till a few days later because it's like I have been so busy that I haven't even realized the effect it's having on me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, everybody who's tired and worn out. Eugene Peterson uses the phrase, burned out on religion. Just, you're just bone tired. And Jesus invites you to come. But the strange thing is, he doesn't offer you a mattress. He doesn't say, come, let's go hang out. I got this, this really cool spot we can hang and chill. He doesn't invite you to come just watch Netflix in your pajamas. He actually gives you a work tool, a yoke. He says, come to me, everybody who's tired. I have this tool that's going to help, which is a lost analogy in our culture because, you know, we don't do this anymore. We, we were once 99% agrarian in America, and now we're 1%. And so this, this analogy is kind of lost on us. But really, the yoke is what they would use. It's a, a piece of wood they would put between two animals, usually oxen, and it would, it would put them together so that they could pull together, and they'd share the load. Well, when a new young ox was being trained, he would be partnered with one who was older and stronger and knew what he was doing. And so when they would go, the young ox didn't have very much of the load at all. The old one carried all of the weight, essentially. And if the young ox got too far ahead, it would start to feel the weight. If it got too far behind, it would start to feel the weight. It was when it learned to walk in step with the mature ox that the burden was truly on the other person. Does that make sense? You guys get what Jesus is inviting us to? He's saying, walk with me. I'm going to show you a new way of life. I'm going to show you how to live in the kingdom of God. And when you do it, I will carry the weight of that stuff. Just don't get too far ahead. Don't get too far behind. Don't try to turn a different direction because that's when you're going to feel it. But when you learn to walk with me, I will give you rest. Because I think a lot of us want what comes with with being a Jesus follower, we want the love, we want the joy, we want the peace, we want, you know, the reality of heaven inside of us and, and eventually the future promise of heaven. We want all of the benefits, but we don't actually want our life to look like Jesus. You know, we want, we want the, the benefits of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. But really, that's, we, that we can't do that in any area of life. We can't be like, I'm going to be a pro basketball player 
but I'm never going to do what pro basketball players do. And so Jesus is saying, if you want the life I offer, you need the lifestyle that I had. Does that mean we need to become a first century Jew? No. It means that we need to look at Jesus' life for practices and habits and things that he regularly did and implement those into our life so that we can have life in the kingdom like he did. So that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. That was our, our long introduction to set up the series because I think it's important to realize why this is such an important thing to implement in our life. So the first one, the very first thing we're going to notice from Jesus' life is silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. So if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've maybe heard of the spiritual disciplines or things like that. I don't really love that word. There's, there's, healthy, there's healthy parts to it. You know, there's good things about being disciplined. Paul talks about being disciplined. Um, I like what one pastor says is practices. Another pastor says formations, things, habits that we regularly do that helps us become who we want to be. Because sometimes when we make it discipline, it, it becomes about that thing, like checking the box and doing that. But really, they're means to an end. They're helping us become who we want to be. So silence and solitude is something we see regularly in Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 3, you can flip there if you have your Bible or scroll there if you're using your phone. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus is baptized and the heavens open, you know, the clouds part, and God speaks and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and this is like a famous thing. We've, we've heard people teach on it or talk about it, or maybe we've read it ourselves. But a lot of times we disassociate it from the next chapter, which is immediately afterwards, Matthew chapter 4. I actually did a whole message on this when I was invited to speak at a middle school camp because he goes immediately from being baptized to the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and is tempted by the devil. And it's such an interesting contrast. I did a whole message called The Water in the Wilderness and how we go from like a spiritual high to, to temptation and, you know, the enemy wants to take away what just happened. But really what was sticking out to me as I was looking at this is Matthew chapter 4. It was just that something I've heard a bunch of times. It says this, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I was just thinking about how interesting that is, and I, I've thought about it before, but it kind of just hit me in a new way, that Jesus was led by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God, into the wilderness. After this moment, he's baptized, God's speaking, his ministry is officially starting, and the first thing that happens is he's led into the wilderness. In Greek, that word for wilderness is a ramos, a ramos. And it can mean a lot of things. It can mean desert, wilderness, but it also can mean desolate place or quiet place or isolated place or even lonely place. So Jesus is led out to the wilderness by the Spirit, and he fasts for 40 days, and it literally says he was hungry because he was human. And who would not be hungry after 40 days? That is crazy. And it's after 40 days that the enemy comes and tries to tempt him, tries to get him to do things, you know, tries to get him to worship him or all of these different things. And so I used to think that's just like the enemy. Get him when he's down. You know, he always comes at us in our weakness. You know, he's hungry. But as I was kind of reflecting and praying on it this week, I don't think Jesus was at his weakest point right here. I think he was actually filled. 
I think he was strengthened from fasting and being alone in the presence of God. I think he just had this moment where he was baptized and, you know, God proclaimed that he was proud of him and he heads into the wilderness to kick off his ministry by doing the most important thing, spending time with his father. And I think that we see that throughout Jesus' ministry. In fact, I know we do. If you read the Gospels, which is one of the things I'm doing in the beginning of the year, I'm rereading through the, the four Gospels, we see over and over and over that Jesus kept disappearing. Not like literally disappearing. He'd go away to a mountain or a garden or some solitary place to be alone. And look at this. Mark chapter 1, if you want to flip over a book, Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says this. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, which some of you are just like, I am not a morning person. Some of you love that. that that's me before kids and hopefully again someday when we sleep. But arising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. Or maybe it even says a lonely place. It is the same word that was used for wilderness in Matthew. It's a ramos. He heads out to this place and he prayed alone. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, at Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus' ministry is just starting. Matthew, or this is Mark chapter 1. It's, it's been talking about the things that he's been doing just since he got baptized. And very early in the morning, day one of ministry is over. First day back from the wilderness. Does all these miracles. What does he do the next morning? He goes out to the Eremos, the lonely place, the, the, the wilderness, to be alone with God. So much so that his disciples are like, where did he go? They have to go find him and be like, I thought we were going to go preach. And he's like, yeah, we're going to go preach. But he needed to go be alone first. A few chapters later, Mark 6, it says this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You know, he had sent them out. He's like, go do this stuff, guys. Go do some ministry. Go do some amazing things. They come back and they're pumped. They're telling him about what he did. Verse 31 and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. It's that same word, Aramos. Come away. He's not so excited about what they did. He's not like, hey, great job. I'm sure he was proud of what they did, but he's like, I know what you need. You need to be alone right now. You need to spend time praying and recovering and resting for many were coming and going, and then they had no leisure to eat. Have you ever been so busy you don't have time to eat? You know, you're chasing your kids around, or you're going from one thing to the next. You get home from work, and you're just exhausted, so you just order pizza, or you, you drove through something on the way just because you're so tired and so busy, you don't even have time to eat. That's how the disciples' day were going. And they went back to the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they've gotten back from ministry, haven't even had time to eat, and Jesus is like, you guys need to be alone. So they go and get in the boat. Not, not all of these other things, not Netflix, not escaping, not a comfy Airbnb. No, they go in a boat to be alone. And then in verse 33, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So it's like, man, they just got back from ministry, and Jesus is like, what you really need is time alone. So they get in the boat. 
but everybody sees him get in the boat, and they run ahead to beat him there. And they're like, man, we were really going to get no time to be alone. And so the introverted disciples, I'm sure at this point, were just like, oh, man, this is rough. And so verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So it's after ministry, when they needed time alone, they did more ministry because they didn't have even the ability to be alone. The people were following them. So finally, after that, if you skip down a few verses to verse 45, it says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. He's like, all right, we did more ministry. I had compassion on the people that ran over here. Now for real, guys, you need to go get in the boat. And he sends them away and dismisses the crowd. And then look at what Jesus does. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. I can relate to that. Sometimes, you know, after you're so busy, you're just like, all right, everybody, out. I just need some time alone. Maybe you've been there. You're just, you're just done. All the family parties were so fun over the last couple of weeks, but you're also like, I am ready for some alone time. And so Jesus sends them out, and he goes and prays. And we know he likes to sleep. We actually see him sleeping throughout the Gospels. He's sleeping on the boat one time in the middle of a storm. But more important than the sleep after a busy day is he went up the mountain and prayed. He spent time with God. And we actually see this over and over. We see it again in Luke 5. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. It's that same word. Eremos, lonely place, isolated place. He was constantly finding places to go where there was no one else so he could be alone with the Father. And so no matter how busy we are, we need to make time for that if we want to be like Jesus. See, if you actually chart Luke, if you look at Luke, the more popular Jesus gets and the busier he gets, the more often Luke says, and he went away. Which is so opposite of us naturally. The busier I am, the less I want to just like go spend time with God. And the more I just want to like sleep or watch TV or like, you know, do something that just checks out. Because it's like I'm exhausted. Because it actually takes more energy still to show up and be present with God. You know, we want to just like be like, I, I'm totally spent. I'm going to go do this. But what we're doing is we're still filling that time with something else that isn't truly giving us life. It's not helping that hurry. It's not helping that pace. And so if we want to be like Jesus, we need to implement some of these habits from Jesus' life into our own. And so his constant getting away is what many people now call silence and solitude. It's time where you're quiet and paused and alone with God. And that might be kind of a foreign concept. You know, maybe you've never done that before. And it's difficult. And to be totally honest, it's harder in the beginning. If you just start you're going to have things rise to the surface that you didn't even know were there. You might feel that anxiety 
more fully. You might feel fear in a greater amount. Don't quit then. Keep going. I'm not saying that immediate time, but like keep going for like another week or two weeks. And you'll slowly start to notice that it will settle. Because what happens is our lives are kind of as if you scooped from the Fox River a jar of water and put a lid on it, and our pace is constantly shaking. You're just constantly shaking that water. And you guys don't need me to tell you that water is kind of gross. You know, I've been in it. It's kind of nasty. And so when you're shaking river water, it's, you can't see through it. You can't see anything. And so it's like when we finally stop for a second and we like reflect and we hear from God, all we see is the swirling and the craziness and we're like, I don't know if I want this. This is like kind of painful. It's actually what one author calls the dark night of the soul. When you actually begin to reflect on, on who you are and what's going on inside, you're not always super happy about what you find. And it's not until we slow down enough that the sediment settles that we can actually have an, a clear picture of what's going on. And so we need to regularly implement silence and solitude into our life. If you already do it, that's great. Maybe increase the time a little bit. If you've never done it before, don't suddenly say, I'm going on a silent retreat for two days. That is a terrible idea. It's great eventually, but maybe start with 10 minutes. 10 minutes, preferably in the morning. That's kind of what Jesus did. And I know for me, that helps a lot more to kind of start my day that way. Before you pull out your phone, before you check the notifications, ideally before you even turn it on, and this is, this is separate from reading your Bible or even worshiping or those things, just sit. Just slow down enough to actually recognize the silence. When's the last time you actually had silence in your life? That you didn't put the earphone, ear, earbuds in or AirPods in, that you didn't turn on the car radio, that is actually silent. You know, we've actually become so used to noise that a lot of us need white noise to fall asleep. Like, we actually don't want silence. And that's fine. You can have white noise to sleep. But I'm wondering, what would happen if we were willing to, for 10 minutes a day, sit before God? Because as we're singing that, that last song we sang, I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment. That doesn't happen when we're hurried. And it's not that God's not willing to. It's just we're not even aware of what he's doing or what he might be speaking. So if we slow down enough just to be in his presence, maybe just a simple prayer. I, I oftentimes just say, God, thank you that you're here. Would you just speak to me? And I'll just sit there. Sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's a lot of me not being able to turn off my brain and being like, I have so much to do today. Or like a lot of those things. And that's fine. I don't count that as failure. There's no failing. We're just practicing. That's why I like the word practice or formation. We're just practicing becoming like Jesus. It's actually really interesting in the, books of Act, in the book of Acts, they're constantly referring to the disciples as followers of the way followers of the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He modeled what it looks like 
to have life in the kingdom. If we want what Jesus has, we have to do things the way Jesus wants us to do them. Silence and solitude, many, many people who've studied the Bible and, and, and spiritual disciplines and things like that, they often say, this is the most important one. They're like, if you were going to do one, do this. You know, Brother Lawrence, who is a monk and from the 1400s, he, he had a, a collection of letters he wrote called Practicing the Presence of God. And really, what happens is he, he was able to take that quiet place, that lonely place, the Aremos, and start to bring that throughout his life. Like, as he was doing other things, he was aware of God's presence. As he was doing the daily tasks of his life, as he was busy and things like that needed to get done, he was aware. But he said that was only possible because he was learning it in the actual quiet place. And so I wanted to spend just a minute here talking about silence and talking about solitude and what they are and aren't, just to be a little bit helpful and practical. So silence is both external and internal. It's external. It's great if you can actually get it quiet. I love worship music, but for this moment, turn off the worship music. You can have that on in a minute. Maybe you have a time of worship, a time of reading, a time of praying, whatever. But for silence and solitude, actual quiet silence. That's hard with kids, maybe not even possible. Try to find a time, a place where you can sneak away, even just for a couple minutes. Quiet is like a spiritual balm, healing for our soul. You know, honestly, we, we overvalue talking in our culture anyway. I love talking. That's actually a big part of what I do for a living is words. But, you know, Proverbs says that where there's much talking, sin abounds. You know, the more we talk, the more we sin. That's just reality. You can ask the person you spend the most time with. Yeah, the more you talk, the more likely you are to say something you shouldn't have said. And I'm not saying we take a vow of silence or anything like that. I'm just like, what if we actually were more intentional people, that we slowed down and were occasionally silent? I think you'd find that that silence is actually carried with you throughout the day, that there's an inner stillness that comes with that. I think Jesus was such a good example of a non-anxious presence. He was so busy. He had so many demands on his time, and he was never in a hurry, sometimes to the point of where it was like a little frustrating. Like grand opening, we talked about Lazarus. He was three days late for that miracle. They asked him to come. He's three days late. He's like not concerned about it. Other people are like, we need this, and he's just not in a hurry about it. And that's only possible when we slow down and spend time with God. It reorients our priorities and things like that. We need to be silent. Solitude is not loneliness or isolation. Solitude is a decision to decompress and be in the presence of God. Isolation is what we seek when we never have solitude. Bonhoeffer, who famously wrote a book about living in community, it's, it's called Life Together, he has a chapter that's called Life Together in that book, and the very next chapter is called Life Alone. And he has this quote, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship 
perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. We need community. We had a message on that a couple months ago, and, and honestly, we're kicking off small groups in just a few weeks. We're really excited for that. Stay tuned. Maybe listen to that message on community, because sometimes we get this idea of these things are in contrast. No, they work hand in hand. Both are necessary. When you overemphasize one, it's easy to swing into unhealth. When you're just about community and you never spend time alone, you don't often know what's actually going on in your own soul. When you're only spending time alone and you're not in community, your outlook tends to get negative. So we need to intentionally stop, but we don't need to isolate. My main thought for today that I want you to walk away with is this. We don't retreat from the world, we retreat for the world. We're not running away because we're tired. We're not running away, hopefully, because we're burnt out. Maybe that's where you're starting right now, and that's okay. But the goal is that we can become healthy enough that we're actually going preemptively, that what we're, what we're getting in that time with God is, is coming back with us as a blessing to others, that we actually are coming back and being present with God and ourselves and with other people, that we're not so rushed, that we're actually coming back and we're full of love, we're full of joy, and we're full of peace. One more quote. Andrew Sullivan, he is a writer, not even a Christian, but a writer in New York, and he said this. Do I have that quote up there? If not, I'll just read it. And so modernity slowly weakened spirituality by design and accident in favor of commerce. It downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure to be reborn. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual death. One of the biggest reasons we plateau in our spiritual life and our soul is suffering is because we don't slow down to be with God. And this is so practical. I don't want any guilt. I don't want any shame. Don't make it a rule. You don't need to add it to your New Year's resolution app and check a box every day. But just practice slowing down and having silence and solitude with God. Start with just a few minutes, a few times a week. I think it'll be really good for us. And as I was dreaming and praying about this series, I started thinking, you know, these next few weeks we're going to talk about more practices from the life of Jesus that will help us with this, Sabbath and things like that. What, what would happen if we all actually started doing this? You know, what if there's, you know, a group of us who actually started becoming more like Jesus, that we were full of love and joy and peace, that no matter how busy our schedule was, and it might be really busy, we were able to be present with people and love them well, I think that would have a really good impact on our community. Outside of the Jesus part of it, I just think, you know, people would want to be around us more. But then with the Jesus part of it, what a good testimony. I think one of the biggest hindrances we have is people don't see what God is actually doing in our life. You know, they're not seeing the fruit that we, we claim to want or have. So let's slow down as a community 
And that doesn't mean clear your whole schedule. It just means spend time with God. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you so much that you love us and you're here for us. Thank you that you're good, that your yoke is easy and your burden is life, that you're showing us a new way to live, a new way to be human, that we can experience the things that you desire for us, that we can be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that, that all of our lives would be marked by those things, not because we tried harder this year, but because we spent time with you this year, that they would be a byproduct of being in your presence, a fruit of your spirit. God, we ask that you would shape us and mold us to be who you want us to be, Give us a picture in these quiet moments of who you want us to be, of who you're calling us to be. Would people get a vision for their year, for who you're calling them to be, for things you want them to change? God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.